WISMED On Call, a bi-weekly podcast from the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host, Peter Welch, Vice President of Public Affairs, and joining me today is journalist and best-selling author David Sheff, who is in Madison for the Wisconsin Medical Society Foundation's annual fundraising event. David has written for the New York Times, Wired, Rolling Stone, Outside, and Esquire, among other publications, and had published books included one based on interviews with John Lennon and an award-winning documentary about John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. In 2008, he published Beautiful Boy, A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction. In the following year, he was named to the Time 100 list, Time Magazine's list of most influential people. He was also honored by the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids in recognition of his voice and leadership for families who are struggling with addiction. David's follow-up book, Clean, Overcoming Addiction and Ending America's Greatest Tragedy, offers counsel for parents and others who want to prevent drug problems and for addicts and their loved ones, no matter what stage of the illness they are in. It also helped propel a powerful rethinking of the public health challenge that is addiction. David, thank you for being here. Peter, thanks so much for doing this. So, you're a journalist by trade. Tell us, you're used to telling stories, you're used to sort of capturing the audience with your words. What led you to decide to share such a personal story? Uh, You know, I never intended to at all. Uh, When uh, my son was, you know, a teenager and he was using drugs like a lot of kids and it escalated and pretty soon, you know, we were overwhelmed by what was going on. And as a journalist writer, um, I was working on a business book, I was doing articles for magazines, but also sometimes when I was up all night, I just sat and wrote. And that's sort of the way I got through some of those nights, you know, just sort of trying to pour it out, organize some of my thoughts. Uh, And it was only much later when he was doing better and I, um, I was sort of trying to figure out what had happened to us and what had happened to him and realized that we were one of these families, just like so many people I knew who thought, you know, this could never happen to us. And I felt that there was value in writing the story. I talked to my son, Nick, I talked to my wife, I talked to his mom. And uh, I, I went to the, my editor at the New York Times Magazine and, and you know, wrote a piece about what we'd been through. One thing that struck me in, in Beautiful Boy was a phrase you used, and forgive me if I'm not hitting it right, but that as a writer, you know, words were your tools. Mm-hmm. They were the way that you interacted with the world. And I wonder, you know, what advice you would have for other people in a similar situation. How do you recognize the, your ability to interact with this challenge with your own set of tools? Yeah, whatever the tool is, it's really, um, I guess in that case, I think for me, uh, words really were a way of organizing chaos. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, there was almost, actually, I talked to my editor about this once. There were, I, I literally, I think there might be something even based, you know, in the biology or something, because I would put by taking words out of this sort of jumble, like a big basket of chaos and pain and, you know, and one at a time and putting them in order, it's almost like a, a, a physical organization of all those thoughts and feelings and it's not a solution but uh, it helped and it did help me get through some of those those nights and I know that it's different for everybody you know I think that um, my wife is an artist she paints and you know you should see the paintings from Mm. that period you know that's the way that she coped Um, 
a lot of times, you know, there was a lot of anger, a lot of frustration that we all felt and chaos and confusion and guilt and shame and all those things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of whatever gets you through the night, you know, as John Lennon said, um, some people, you know, it's much more physical and, and, and I go running and my son now, you know, this, the one who's been suffering this whole time with addiction, part of the way he copes is, um, uh, is taking his dogs for walk, walks and surfing. Mm. And he does it almost every day. And he said that if he doesn't do it, it's his mind, you know, it's, it's for survival in a, in a way. Yeah, it's really powerful. And, and you must run into people every day who your writings have helped move them to a place where they can hopefully cope with the chaos more effectively. So it was something, you know, that, that I've heard you say before in your writings and in other speaking engagements is, you know, there's this, there's this point of sort of bottoming out. And for many people struggling with addiction, that, that is death. I mean, there's no, there's no way around it that people struggle to the point and we lose, I think you said 65,000 people a year yeah. uh, to addiction. How did you recognize, where was that bottom for Nick, for your family? And looking back, you know, where did it start to all sort of get better? Hmm. Um, well, it ten, took 10 years, as I said. And so they were, what happened was Nick's drug use escalated. He would get in situations that were incomprehensible to me. I mean, just terrible, terrible things. He was overdosing. He was, I'd get calls from the hospital. He called me from the hospital. Um, there was a time when a doctor almost had to amputate his arm because it had gotten infected. Uh, he was homeless for a while. I mean, all the things that, you know, to a parent, it's like, what? What is going on? And so I would get him finally off the streets or wherever he was and get him into treatment. And I would think, oh my God, thank God, it's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. It's, it's over. But that's not what would happen. Every time it, it got worse and worse and worse. Um, and throughout that time, when I would go to treatment centers, they had family programs. Sometimes I went to Al-Anon meetings and there was this um, drumbeat, this refrain. You know, you got to let him hit bottom. You have to stand back and let him hit bottom. Um, and only then, you know, when somebody has this disease, when they have addiction, only then if they are so desperate that they think they're going to die and they crawl into a treatment center, do they have a chance? Um, and it was against every instinct I had as a parent to step back and assume that um, that, that was going to happen. Uh, and sometimes it does happen. And I heard stories. They would have speakers tell us, I hit bottom. I was on the streets. I was, you know, I woke up with a needle in my arm. I didn't know where I was. And that was the light that made me go into treatment. Um, but I think that Nick would say, was that there wasn't a bottom, it was a process. And it, that's, it took 10 years, and those 10 years, there was a lot of life-threatening drug use. He could have died. Mm -hmm. um, but we were lucky. And what happened was, when he would be sober for a while, and then go back into treatment, over time he learned a lot of the lessons of addiction that were very practical. You know, they learned about triggers, you know, places, people, places, and things, they say, where you should not be. Mm. Uh, and of, course, of course, you know, he's like a kid, any kid, he's, like, he's not listening to them and thinks they don't know what they're talking about. But over time he learns, well, I probably shouldn't go to this kid's house because mm -hmm. they're all going to be getting wasted. It's probably not great for me. Um, and the progress included being sober um, and then relapsing again and 
Whereas in the past, every relapse led absolutely to catastrophe. You know, he would start with, he'd think, I could just have one drink or I could just smoke one joint. And within a couple of days, he was drinking a bottle of vodka and shooting up methamphetamine. Um, but over time, he relapsed and smoked that joint and started to go. One time it started because he was at a party and he opened up a medicine cabinet in the bathroom, which people who are addicted often do, I hear. Um, and there was a bottle of Vicodin, and so he thought, I'll take one, just to sort of even out a little bit and help me deal with the party, the social anxiety, whatever. <laughs> um, and it kind of felt normal and good, so he went back and got another one, another one. So he was addicted again, and he was ready to go out and score more drugs, and then his mind, something clicked. And he said, hmm, I just relapsed. If I don't deal with this, I'm going to be on the streets again, and everything I've worked for is going to be gone. And so he did um, check himself into treatment. And that, to me, was a huge sign of progress and suggested that, you know, this concept of hitting bottom, it, it, I mean, I suppose in some ways you can say that this process brought Nick to an understanding of his problem to the point that maybe that was his bottom. Whereas instead, this idea of hitting bottom, which a lot of times involves slamming the door on a loved one's face, kicking them out onto the street, um, you know, I actually went through some of it before I learned the lesson. One time I did hang up on Nick um, when he was begging for help, and I was lucky because he called again the next day. Uh, but so often it doesn't work, and somebody does slam that door, they kick them out of the house, and the next call they get is from the police or the hospital and saying, we've got your kid, you know, he's died. It's a, it's a very complicated issue, obviously, when you talk about an individual. There's all these factors that play into it, and it's it's interwoven with you know, with family and with economic circumstances and opportunity and the friendship and the relationships, I feel like it's mimicked if we look at the public health concern as a whole. It's, it's equally complex and it's, there are people that are offering lots of simple solutions, right? But we know simple solutions in the case of an individual don't often work. Maybe it's the same for, for public health. And for us at the Medical Society, we're, we're very interested in, in how the physician fits in with that picture. You know, for us, we've got an opioid task force. Members of ours serve on the governor's opioid task force. And we've got a mental and behavioral health committee that focuses on how mental health plays into this, issues of workforce access, of, of mental health parity for treatment. So in, in your dealings with, with you know, mental health professionals, with physicians across the U.S., you know, how does the physician fit into the solution? Well, the physician is right at the center. And um, in the past... Physicians, just I don't think many of them, most of them didn't understand addiction at all. And I don't think it's a doctor's fault. I think it's because there was just a survey that the American Society of Addiction Medicine carried out of, I think, the top 37, or maybe it's two-thirds of, of medical schools in, in, this, in, in America, and found out that the average training in addiction medicine for these future doctors is an hour. Mm. Um, so they don't know, clearly. The, the response, you know, they need to know. Doctors need to know because uh, everything from prescribing, how do you responsibly prescribe, how do you deal with a patient who needs pain medication, and, you know, bear, balance that out with the potential for addiction. Uh, and now, also, physicians are at the center of what I consider the new paradigm of saving lives. Uh, in the past, people who became addicted were sent to rehab, and often rehab was... These rehabs were started by people who had no training at all. They were not doctors, and they, their only qualifications were that they themselves had been 
in recovery for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to help people, but all they knew to help people with is what they had helped them. Mm-hmm. Often it was, usually it was just you know, one thing and it was the 12 steps. Uh, now we know that addiction is a disease and it's very complicated and it has an environmental and psychological and bio- biological factors. And we know that what you do if somebody that you love or yourself, if you've got a problem, if you've got a medical problem, you go to your doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past, if you went to your doctor with addiction, oftentimes you were given bad advice. You were told to go to AA meetings and sort of, you know, with a pat, pat on the back. So, you know, we want to be able to do what we do for other diseases, which is um, rely on our physicians for help. So physicians can there's a whole network that needs to be in place. And one of them is the ability for people at the front lines, uh, general pr- practitioners, pediatricians, others, and people in clinics and emergency rooms to be able to recognize when somebody has the potential of a um, substance use disorder and then not let it go at that. A lot of times in emergency rooms, if somebody comes in and they're overdosing, the staff will use um, Narcan, naloxone, and revive them. And then they're sort of given a pat on the back and sent on their way. Um, what we know is that, no, these people need more treatment than that. So the hope is that these people who have access to those with problems at the beginning can recognize the problem, begin treatment once away. Hopefully they'll be trained in some of the treatments that can be administered you know, at a very basic level, which includes uh, a behavioral intervention called ESPERT, where a doctor can either refer to a therapist who's trained in this or be, or be trained in this, which is a process of just three therapy sessions, which has been shown to have a dramatic impact on use in the future. Another one is now during the opioid crisis, as, as many doctors as possible should be trained and licensed to be able to prescribe um, buprenorphine. That's happening more and more. There are limits on how many patients a doctor can treat, which is ludicrous. Um, that medication is life-saving. If you put somebody on buprenorphine, they're twice as likely to stay sober, to stay um, in recovery than if you don't. Um, But then when they recognize patients that need more help, there needs to be a place to refer them to. And that's a real problem now because it's hard to refer people if you don't have anywhere to refer them. And so that's where the system comes in. So what happens if in the emergency room, you've got a patient who has a severe problem, where do you send them? they have to be trained and there have to be places to go, whether it's in the same healthcare system, whether it's you know, in the same hospital, there's a wing that deals with addiction treatment or an association with another program that um, offers addiction care, but not just addiction care, you know, good care, which means care based on evidence where a patient will work with addiction counselors, psychiatrists to help determine what else is going on because usually people who become addicted have co-occurring psychological disorders. Um, it's a challenge. But we got to do it, you know. Too many people are dying. Yeah, I, tell me a little bit about, you know, in in clean you tackle the the idea of addiction more broadly across the U.S. Your experience in your family is with your son's use of, of methamphetamines, and opioids are, are very different, and alcoholism and, and other addictions. So, what would you say are some of the interesting factors of of these different kinds of addiction, and how do they how do they all sort of come together as mm-hmm. as one universal problem? Yeah. Well, so many uh, people become addicted to, it's, sometimes it's environmental. You know, if you're in a community that's inundated with opioids, that's the likely way you're going to go if, if a lot of communities are inundated with methamphetamine. 
we deal oh. with this in Wisconsin in, in rural areas to the further north you know you go and you talk to people and they say opioids aren't as big of an issue here it's meth it's meth and it's increasing and and frighteningly so you know with the with the increased press in the dangerousness of opioids we've heard some people say that people in northern wisconsin are saying well you know if opioids are too dangerous we're going to switch to something safer like methamphetamines and you just have to you have to throw your arms up and and say oh my gosh how do we tackle this problem it's really you know there's always this fight to try to, I mean, this comes from Washington and, and uh, state capitals, um, we want to target the supply of these drugs. And so there's a lot of sort of draconian uh, interventions where people who are you know, caught with a very small amount of drugs are put in the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. And then there's a lot of resources trying to you know, eradicate drugs abroad and to stop drugs from being brought into the country. Uh, and what we know is someone who has this disease, they're, they're going to get whatever drug they need. And you can go to the local liquor store if that's mm-hmm. what you want. If you've got nothing else, it's easy to get pot. And it's easy to get heroin. It's easy to get meth. They're cheap. Um, the biological mechanisms, you know, the brain reaction to these drugs is different in every case. But they all interact with the same sort of pleasure dopamine system. Um, so basically they're the same and basically the problem becomes the same, which is that how do you counteract that, uh, that deprivation of, of dopamine? And uh, in the meantime, because of the deprivation of dopamine, uh, there's a craving that people describe as the kind of craving that you would have for air if you were in a room where there was no mm-hmm. oxygen. I mean, that desperation is what leads people to do, you know, uh, horrendous things that to get drugs. I mean, these are people who would not rob people. They would not break into you know, stores or rob liquor stores. It's I, that threshold um, of irrational thought, right? People say we're addicted to Facebook or addicted to our phones, but you're not necessarily going to do irrational things in order to yeah. check your Facebook feed. But That's it's right. totally different. It's totally different because these chemicals are changing the brain. It's really changing the brain. And I've seen it in, by visiting a lot of research laboratories, and I've seen PET scans, and I've seen other you know, the way that chemical tests, I mean, various things, the brains of people who are addicted are different and they are not responding. The parts of the brain that normally would lead to um, restraint, they are not working. Um, Some of the drugs are more dangerous than others. Um, The most uh, dangerous drugs to get off of, for people to uh, detox from, are actually alcohol and uh, Benzo, benzos like like Valium and um, Ativan and things like that. So people like that, people on those drugs, those are the ones that can kill you the mm-hmm. easiest. Other drugs can kill you too, but but those, if somebody tries to get off those drugs at home in their bedroom or in a hotel room, it's really dangerous because they can cause seizures and they can cause other problems. And so those people need to be in medical detox, uh, in a hospital or in an environment that can you know deal with that. Um, the first line of defense against opioids. Our addiction medications like buprenorphine, Suboxone, um, those drugs don't work for the stimulants. Uh, there aren't any magic bullets for meth. Uh, so basically, if somebody has an opioid addiction, s- start there. Uh, then you can work on whatever else is going on. Get them di- uh, get get them assessed for other psychological problems. Uh, help figure out strategies that might help them so they don't relapse. Besides. You know, whether or not they were on Suboxone. Um, other 
of others of these addictions, the stimulant addictions like cocaine and methamphetamine. Uh, there are some medications that can help relieve cravings, same with alcohol. But a lot of what is required are behavioral technology, uh, behavioral treatments, beha uh, uh, cognitive behavioral, dialectical behavioral therapies. Um, so they're different in, in that way. But the, you know, the basic mechanisms are the same and the basic dangers are the same. You know, these are all, they have in common the fact that people build up tolerance. They want more and more of these drugs. They crave more and more of these drugs. They need more and more of these drugs for their neurological system to continue to function. And very quickly, you know, quicker than some drugs, quicker than others, they become addicted. And once they have that substance use disorder, they need treatment. So opioids have been around for a while into the, in the medical community. And we've seen, you know, the ebbs and flows of different substances that, that see a spike in the general population and then maybe fade. But everything we, we sort of see about the current issues of addiction, the, the numbers are off the charts compared to some of these previous issues. So why... Why now and why such a, a pronounced increase? Yeah, I just read in your state over the course of the last year, there are a 109% increase in emergency room visits because of opioids. Yeah. Um, a lot of things have come together. Uh, there has been just ignorance about opioids. Um, my daughter, when she was about 16 or 17, it wasn't that long ago, um, went to the dentist to have her wisdom teeth pulled and she left with a prescription for 20 Vicodin refillable for another 20 so 40 Vicodin you know she took a half she didn't need the rest we disposed of the rest um, but there was an there was ignorance so that these are everywhere you know the number one place kids get opioids is from their parents medicine cabinets um, so a warning goes with that you know <laughs> dispose of your drugs lock them away but um so there was this sort of free-for-all in terms of prescribing. Um, I think physicians were lied to. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that the drug companies uh, behind some of these medications, these opioids, pushed them to the point that, you know, that uh, they said they were not addictive. Not only that they could be addictive, but that they were not addicted. So it was real easy for a doctor to prescribe these drugs. And so the supply um, is huge. Uh, one of the other things that's happened, and I've read some interesting research on this, is that drug use in general is up because of social factors. The assumption that a lot of times drug use is, we always think about it as just partying or for kids, you know, peer pressure, everybody's doing it, so I want to do it. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that tells us that the reason kids especially use drugs and start using drugs is because of different kinds of stress. And there are also measures that tell us that stress has increased dramatically on our kids right now. Um, you know, in certain environments, kids are, kids are super stressed because of competition, the changes in the economy, which suggests that, you know, even if you go to graduate school, you're not guaranteed a job and they're getting pressured by their parents. Their schools are, you know, there was a school, their school, a school district near us. They were facing budget cuts. You know, they didn't cut the um, AP classes. They cut counselors and sports and art, which are the three things that I would say actually can help kids cope better. Um, kids in dangerous, violent neighborhoods, of course, they're under stress. Um, so as you have increased stress, it's more likely 
I mean, we know that the more stress, the more drug use. Forget about, you know, technology that's stressing out our kids. You know, the whole thing about cyberbullying is huge. Fear of missing out. You know, that's a real thing. Kids like look on their Instagram and they see all their friends on the weekend partying. Nobody's posting pictures of themselves, you know, sitting around reading a book or taking a walk <laughs> in nature. So there's that kind of stress. And so the likelihood that people then, if they're in a situation where they can take a half of a bike it in and take it and then it feels better and they don't feel the stress as much. I mean, people take drugs because they work. They make us feel better. So you add that. Uh, and then um, there is uh, the connection between uh, pills and other opioids, the, the illicit opioids, or, uh, which, which mean that, for, for instance, I'll go to a community, I'll go to a school, and I'll talk to kids, and a person who would never, ever consider heroin. I mean, everybody, they've been warned about heroin, and heroin sounds like something that's so dark and scary that it is not even on there. There's no way. But they're hanging out with their friends, and someone gives them a half of Vicodin or a half of Oxycontin, or they find one in a parent's medicine cabinet, and they try it, and suddenly that stress, you know, it kind of evaporates. They're feeling better, and they want another one, and then they want another one, and then suddenly they can't get them so easily. Uh, at this particular school I went to, Pills were going for $30 and $35 and $40, and the, the supply was limited. At the same time, if somebody needs more and more of those pills to get high, uh, and they learn that you can get the same experience with heroin, which is about $5 or $10 for a hit, a lot of people switch to those opioids. And I think if you put all those things together, um, the readily the ready supply now, I mean, heroin is just flooded. That's, um, uh, that's actually taking over for uh, the prescription medication pain pill as far as the fastest growing segment of, uh, of people who are using drugs. So heroin, and now of course heroin is laced often with fentanyl, and fentanyl is so much stronger than heroin, and some people are just using fentanyl. And there's this new thing called carfentanyl, I don't know if you've heard about that, which I think it's supposed to be like, I don't know, a thousand times stronger than heroin. So I think everything together has put us in this situation. I appreciate that perspective. Clearly this is a a serious issue of our times, maybe one of the greatest challenges we're, we're facing lately, and uh, I'm glad that you're engaged. I'm glad that you're speaking out about this. It's very important to the medical society. It's very important to our members, and as we talk to our members every day, you know, they're on the front lines, as you say, trying to find ways to intervene and, and help their patients get better. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and that's going to wrap up this edition of WISMED On Call. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org, and look for future episodes wherever you can get your podcast. David, if they want more information about you and your books, where can they go? Uh, my website has a lot of information about resources for people who are in trouble, uh, prevention techniques, davidchef.com. Great. If you've got any suggestions for us, please send an email to communications at wismed.org, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you all for listening.